Welcome along to the Prevention is the New Cure podcast. We're discussing all things NHS and health related with a political twist. I am Steve Bryan, I'm Member of Parliament, represent Winchester in Hampshire. I'm Chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee in the House of Commons. And I'm Helen Stokes-Lampard. I'm a GP in the Midlands, uh, Chair of the National Academy for Social Prescribing. And until quite recently, I was Chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges. Hi, Steve. Good to see you again. Hi, Helen. Nice to see you. Um, Episode 12, the summer, the one with the summer holiday. Yay, the summer edit. And our happy dozen. Our happy dozen. Well, you've been on your summer holiday. I am preparing yeah, it, it's a funny feeling when you take a slightly earlier summer holiday and you see everyone else going off to interesting and exciting places. But uh, you're looking forward to it. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, we, we go to Devon, so we stay in this country. And that kind of a throwback to when we had very small children and uh, Monty, who's my dog's brother, Popcorn. Um, and, we, you know, why would you why would you ever want to get on a plane with very small children? And we couldn't take the dog. So we sort of started going to Devon and I used to go there when I was a kid and we still go there. Basically we go to the same place and the photos look exactly the same, but I look a bit fatter and a bit older and the children look a bit more grown up. That's it basically. <laughs> but I mean, let's hope the weather's good for you because it's been a bit unpredictable recently, but the forecast in the medium range is a bit better, I think. So fingers crossed. Well, it's currently blue skies and sunny in Winchester and it is supposed to get a bit better towards the end of this week and next week, which is which is blessed relief. And for Winchester, it is really blessed relief because we have Boomtown Festival here in in the constituency at the moment, which I went up to yesterday with uh, with my you know, my son, William, just because it opened to, today, Wednesday, as we're recording this it opens today to the public 62,000 people coming to a field near me so Winchester this morning was full of campers hello campers hello Uh, that's that's my line Steve oh yeah of course you you do sound like her actually um so yeah they are all descending on Winchester for their festival it's called Boomtown Fair Boomtown what sort of music um well if I told you the headliners are the prodigy and sister Sledge Oh, okay. But, but, heavy, my, yeah, but the thing is, the Prodigy guy, uh, Keith from the Prodigy, yeah. died last year. And yeah. Sister Sledge, I mean, they're not in their first Sledge of Youth, let's be honest. Um, but the, most of the music I've never heard of, that is not a reflection on on them. It is a reflection on me being almost 50. And, you know, it's quite, it's quite dancey. Mm. Dancey <laughs> and trancey. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> yeah, we're not talking Elton John and Fleetwood Mac. Okay. But that's okay. Each to their own, and it'll yeah. get people moving. But but great, great to bring some trade to Winchester. Although I'm not sure, does Winchester need the trade at the moment? Well, I think that to the taxi drivers and all that love it. And so I, one of the things I was up there actually to, on the on the health tip is that they've been very good at Boomtown. And there's a whole issue around health at festivals, you know. And there's yeah. a whole issue around drug taking at festivals, Sexual and um, and obviously drug taking is is not good and it's not legal um but it's but there is drug taking goes on at festivals and there is a, something called the loop l-o-o-p which is a charity which basically runs drug testing at festivals so yeah. you know people can go and take drugs there that they get tested and it's very controversial as you can imagine they operate under very strict home office licensing they're not actually at boomtown festival this year in the sense that they didn't have a public facing come and come and test 
potential dangerous substances. But they have done that in the past. Th this time they're doing sort of public awareness because, you know, people have died at festivals from, yeah. from taking bad drugs and out in the sunshine and the heat and dehydration, people taking what they think are, um, you know, enhancement drugs and they end up being... Uh, horse tranquilizers for instance yeah. and people yeah. have died from that so there's a whole issue around health and festivals which we could talk about one day i think we should actually because there's so many issues around you know there's sexual health and screening there's drugs there's also just alcohol is the most prevalent drug that's used at festivals and i think there is something we could be talking about there as well so yeah for a so future they're very, episode they're very good at boomtown i mean they'll love this plug but they're very good and uh, uh, trying to create sort of mental well-being areas oh. in every bit of the festival where they have campsites so that basically yeah. you get there's the bowl the matterly bowl which is where the festival exists in and um then there are the campsites if you like are a bit away from there so you sort of you walk away and it gets quieter and it gets quieter and then you get to the campsite area and they have right. sort of mental well-being areas for people to sort of decompress if you like from yeah. the music which is quite you know it's quite boom boom yes. and so boom town and so I, you know that that whole issue around mental health and well-being at festivals uh, it, it's yeah and as you say the other issues around sexual health and that it is there's a lot to there's a lot to health at festivals which we could talk about in the future anyway it is episode 12 last time we had rebooting the nhs with david haslam and david pendleton the two davids yeah and uh thank, thanks yeah thanks to them we had a really good feedback from them. they were good weren't they they were great it was a really good provocative conversation about how we should be rebooting the nhs and we need something a bit radical in the near future not just uh, same old yeah uh, so please like the podcast whatever platform you listen to it on whether that be spotify or um whatever you do please like our podcast because it really helps us and it helps more people find it uh what are we going to talk about we've got a relatively shorter podcast this week just because we don't have any guests because it's it's august and people are quite rightly taking a break but we wanted to to keep ourselves up there what's going on in gp world helen um well i mean just very briefly i think general practice is sort of always changes a bit during the peak summer holidays because we have an influx of visitors so temporary residents people who are unwell while they're away from home uh, seeking temporary residents to get emergency treatment at gp surgery so we've had a little flurry of that in litchfield and um, mostly with us i'll be honest with you, we're not a coastal town so we're not a peak holiday area but lots of people visiting relatives and we do have a magnificent cathedral in litchfield and we've got the very impressive national memorial arboretum at the road and lots of interesting historic stuff so we get coach tours um, and we get families generally. One of the commonest reasons are people with fairly minor things or people who've left medication at home. And actually, if you've left your medication at home, if you can contact your own GP surgery, there is something amazing called the electronic prescribing service. So most people will know by now that in England, you don't touch your paper prescriptions anymore. The whole thing is electronic from the moment the GP or whatever prescriber issues them goes electronically through to the pharmacy of your choice where you can collect it. But there's also a system whereby you can pick up a prescri prescription from any registered pharmacy in England. Um, so it requires the GP or whoever to press a certain button to make sure that the prescription is collectible from anywhere. Uh, but hugely helpful if you've managed to let, leave your inhaler behind or something important like that. So, uh, yeah, oh, I see. Yeah. So I suppose in I mean, summer season, I suppose you've got new faces pitching up at the GP in the oh. consulting rooms and people being unwell and on holiday who are not your registered patients. I guess you probably have that a bit less in Litchfield than I'm going to find down in Devon, where obviously it's a, a seaside town. 
yeah, the Devon GPs um, grown every summer. Uh, they they avoid taking their holidays then because they know the demand is greatest during school holidays than at any other time. Um, but of course, a different type of illness is often acute, you know, self-limiting illnesses, you know, sort of stomach bugs, infections and, and minor injuries. And of course, remembering to use the right NHS resource. So whether that's a pharmacy, whether that's a minor injury walk-in centre or an NHS 111 centre. So um, think before you pitch up a GP surgery, is this the right place for me to be? Our local mm. pharmacies are fantastic for a lot of minor ailments nowadays. Yeah, right. OK, well, flip-flops to the ready. <laughs> and I'm, I'm I'm actually doing my summer tour at the moment, which is something where a lot of MPs do it, where I rock up in supermarkets and on street corners and, uh, and hold a little pop-up surgery. And I call it my summer tour. We haven't been very summery at the moment. The best one we did was inside the big Tesco's in Winchester, which was nice and dry and actually warm. Well, uh, the which supermarkets tra- are available, Steve. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, although, yeah, Sainsbury's let me in. Waitrose don't, just saying. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so, yeah, but the weather's been very disappointing for me. Anyway, stories. What yes. stories have we got? Mom. Uh, what about starting with weight loss? That's been a big one today. Yes. What are you suggesting? So, <laughs> I'm absolutely not. Don't take it personally. Don't be sensitive. Um, no, we, we talk a lot about weight loss when it comes to prevention. We know that for the vast majority of people, losing a bit of weight is incredibly helpful for them um, in terms of reducing cardiovascular stress. And with a weight loss drug story today. So you may recall a few months ago, a weight loss drug was approved for use in the NHS. I think it was about June approval came through. Turns out this same drug, that's Wegovi, is that ringing bells with you? Yep, I heard it. Yep, uh, proper name semaglutide, um, has been shown it c- cuts the risk of a cardiovascular event in overweight people who've got heart disease by a fifth. So basically, 20% reduction in risks of, cardio- of, of a heart attack, essentially, um, if you're taking it compared to not taking it, if you're overweight. So we need to see the proper research paper. Uh, one of the frustrations I think we've mentioned before is for me as, as an academic is seeing big research findings presented by press release as opposed to in peer-reviewed research paper. But of course, something like this is going to push the share price of a drug app. So they have to re- uh, release them very carefully this way. Any thoughts on this, Steve? Well, I mean, obviously, yeah, obesity and the health impacts of it. I think that we say we often quote the figure and it's probably under quoting it. It costs the NHS about six billion pounds a year. Wow. So, uh, you know, these are big, big figures. I think the this injection, the Wagovi injection mm. that we're talking about, I think it's very popular in the US, isn't mm. it? And I guess my only concern would be the messaging around it that it's not a replacement for healthy eating for yeah. good exercise for understanding any other reasons for weight gain or weight loss um it is that you it is not there's no such thing as a magic pill and there's no such thing as a magic jab and if and if there is if something seems too good to be true it usually is so i guess while the makers would say there's a clear medical benefit to this um there's just that warning light. Would I be too careful in saying that? I think that's absolutely spot on because the challenge here is that we medicalize stuff that should be behavioral. Um, but seeing this as a supplement, not as uh, you know a replacement for healthy living, exercise, good diet, and, and, and obviously the hard discipline that comes around losing weight. But I think 
I've certainly seen huge benefits in patients who've uh, used it. It, it. Remember, this is a drug originally developed for use in people with the management of diabetes. Then the weight loss benefits were so striking in some people, people who are motivated already with diabetes. Um, and then the additional trials have been done. It's been used in weight loss clinics in the UK for quite a long time. And I think one of my worries is that when people can access drugs like this privately, you create a greater divide between those who can afford to pay for stuff privately versus those who can't. Um, but I think, and the, oh, the other thing we know is that in some of the earlier trials, certainly when people stopped using it, the weight crept back on again. Well, that's not a long-term solution. We can't have people on self-injectable, expensive, very expensive drugs lifelong. That's that's not going to be right uh, for society. So there is something about working out how best they can use to fit with the NHS model, definitely our prevention agenda, um, but as part of a full lifestyle package, not just yeah. the solution. And it's worth saying that Novo Nordisk, who are the, who are the makers behind this, you know, they say they're going to take it to regulators in the US and the EU before the end of this year it also going to need to be approved by regulators here in the in the yeah. uk so the mhra and and then of course it would have to be decided whether it could be offered nice. on the nhs beyond the use that it currently has so yeah. there is some way to go on this but you know anything that can help us tackle the obesity challenge and its impact on poor health and the prevention thereof obviously is something that we're interested in yeah, go on. Positive, sorry, can I give a quick plug for NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence? Because we're so lucky in the UK, we've got an independent body who take the findings. So the MHRA may well license this, but then there's the question of whether this is a cost-effective, appropriate thing for the NHS to be funding, and that's where NICE comes in. And I think we are very fortunate in having a body that can take an objective look at these things. I'm certain you'll always get lobby groups and pressure groups pushing hard for what they want as an outcome, but they're looking what's best for the whole of society. And I think uh, it's not to be underestimated. And they're really looking to fast track their decision making. They've really had a big overhaul the last year or so. So it'd be interesting to see how they respond to when this comes through next year. Yeah. And they're going to face more and more of these challenges as wow. more and more drugs come online, which has been their challenge for many years. Um, to tell you a story that, I, that really caught my eye as a former health minister. And I had the international brief and I, and I really loved that and got a chance to travel to G7 and G20 meetings is this as a, it's often the way, isn't it? You know, the apple fell from the tree and, and landed on on the head um chance discovery helps fight against malaria uh, you know malaria kills about 600 six people a year which you know often children under five which is just heartbreaking isn't it and, and vaccines of course have been developed but they're still in the early stages being rolled out in africa um i think the stat is that in africa malaria kills a child every single minute but oh we've yeah, i know i know uh, and, and a credit to people like bill gates you know the foundation who've done so much to, yeah. to, to help in this space but there's been some new data i spotted published in science magazine suggests that the, the bacteria can reduce a mosquito's parasite load by up to 73 percent they 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 found a naturally occurring strain of bacteria which can help stop the transmission of malaria from mosquitoes to human they found it by chance after a colony of mosquitoes in one experiment didn't develop the malaria parasite which they then pass on to on to often children so this is a really interesting story, isn't it? Fab. You know, it, it reminds me of the first chance discoveries of penicillin, you know, sort of mould in Petri dishes. And it was only the next morning, you know, looking back at it, that, that, past, that, you know, that, that they would just sort of hang on. What's just happened? It's, you know, it's that chance observation and not overlooking a chance observation, but actually having the 
scientific curiosity to pursue it, and that which is what seems to have happened here. So it looks like they've been looking at this for quite some time because the observation was first made in 2014, then went back a couple of years later. So it was 2016 they first noted, and then they've been interrogating it properly since. So I think this is exciting. Um, and if you can reduce the viral load, you reduce the, the amount of disease transmitted. It, it, it's straightforward. So, yeah, very exciting uh, one to watch. Yeah, I, I have a bit to do with a charity called Malaria No More, oh, who, who've definitely been in touch with the select committee, a really good bunch of people. Good. And they, they said that it was promising the uh, chap called Gareth Jenkins, uh, mm. who was uh, did some media on this when this story came out the other day, said malaria kills a child every minute. Significant progress has been made in reducing the global burden of malaria. But to get us back on track, we need new and innovative tools in the arsenal. And with a strong innovation pipeline, it's possible to end the threat of malaria in our lifetime. So, wow. Amazing. Wow. Well, it really, it really would, it really I would. Mean, not a huge problem in the UK, but you do get cases every year of people coming back, mostly you know, traveling abroad and then bringing malaria back with them. So uh, yeah, wonderful if we can do that. Um, so there's an old disease and then a relatively new disease is something that seems to be back in the news a little bit and it keeps coming up anecdotally. I'd be interested to know whether it does in, in your world is COVID-19. <laughs> the minor matter of the global pandemic? COVID-19. Yeah. Yes, the, the, the pandemic formerly known as. And, yeah, it's definitely around. It's not gone away. Never went away, Steve. And it's back in the news because COVID vaccines are not going to be offered routinely to healthy under 65s this winter, following yeah. following information that governments have require, uh, received from, from the immunisation experts, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, the JCVI. Um, Last year, all over 50s, which is happily not me, um, were invited for a That's booster fun. jab. Not yet, anyway. We were invited for a booster jab, but only the 65s are going to get the option this year, and the government yeah. have accepted that advice. Now, from a clinical point of view, doctor, do you uh, concur? It's a really interesting one. So I'm a, you know, I'm a huge fan, a proponent of vaccines, both influenza and the COVID vaccine. And if you remember, the first big rollout, the evergreen vaccination offer for COVID was that everybody should be vaccinated. Then we defaulted to the sort of the booster being everybody over 50 plus those with uh, plus young children, plus those with a, um, a poor immune system or in, in a disease group. The fact now we've reverted to effectively what used to be the vaccine, the flu vaccine target groups prior to the pandemic is essentially what's happened here. So COVID is being treated like influenza in terms of the vaccine. It raised, it certainly raised a few eyebrows because there are people who are thinking, actually, I want the protection. I don't want to have flu or covid even if i only get the mildly they're really stinking miserable infections in fact i've had a few patients just this week who said they've had covid or family members have had covid recently and how miserable they felt and they'd forgotten what a miserable virus it is um but i think there is also a balancing act and obviously jcvi who are extremely wise have looked at all the evidence the evidence of the benefit a benefit to wider society versus the cost of rolling out vaccine and come up with this and I never argued with what the JCVI have come up with in the past. I'm not about to now, but I'd be interested to learn more about it because I've heard grumblings. I think that's fair to say. Well, I think, do you remember how many times did we hear this during the pandemic when ministers said and the NHS said, you know, we will follow 
the evidence will be led by the science. Do you remember yeah. that term? Absolutely. And this is the science that is yeah. telling ministers do not make these decisions without advice. They have to accept advice or reject advice. And if they do either, they have to justify that. You know, I used to receive advice from JCBI and it's a very brave minister or a, or, or a very well briefed to the contrary minister who decides to reject that advice. So yeah, I can't, I can't deny I've had a few constituents contact me and complain about this but i think the science and jcbi of course publish all of their deliberations is very clear on that it, it does seem to be I, i've met a few people in the last few days who've sort of said to me that they had covid last week and there seems to be a pretty pretty nasty bout of it going around at the moment and this is mid-august yeah. should this worry us or i mean is it just the same way as you know there's a nasty strain of a cold goes round, uh, or flu will go round. Well, what's interesting is normally respiratory viruses peak in the winter months. So we're used to a massive spike in January is the commonest month for influenza, uh, the peak. Um, although we, it can start early. I mean, the, the year just gone, it started in December. Um, actually, COVID hasn't followed that trajectory. So this COVID is behaving differently from influenza. Um, and certainly, as I said, I've had a couple of patients this week who've known people or family members who've had it. And of course, many people aren't testing anymore. So it's going to be circulating. We're just going to know. There've certainly been lots of people with very annoying chesty coughs, which drag on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. The cough, I mean, not feeling unwell. Um, and that, you know, I find myself with my sort of medical antenna going, I wonder if that was COVID that they've just had, just because of the longevity of the symptoms and how washed out people have been. But this is all about learning to live with the infect the disease. And I think the new normal is that we're going to have these infections. Um yeah, finding a new pattern, Steve. But why would you test? Because you can't report it. There's nowhere no, to go with it. Exactly. There's no means of reporting. I guess for me at a personal level, I'd be thinking about the most vulnerable people I work with and the high level of infectivity of it. So, you know, as a healthcare professional, um, would you want to come and see lovely Dr. Helen when she's hiding behind a mask but is coughing and spluttering? Mm -hmm but feels well enough to go into work. Now, I have to say, there's a real balance here about, I think we've all changed our um, tolerance for being in work when we're not unwell. And there's a whole thing about presenteeism and people soldiering on into work, which I think has reduced a lot because of the pandemic, because we, we're better, certainly in the surgery, looking at one another and going, much as I desperately want you, my fellow GP, working alongside me today, you look rubbish, you sound rubbish, and you're going to scare the patients off, and you look like you need to be at home in bed. Oh, well, do you remember when Matt Hancock was before my select committee, when Jeremy was chairing it during the pandemic, and he, I remember him saying in the future, we may have to get more savvy about people who've got colds, viruses, sniffles, working from home. Because yeah. we then stop it circulating. Exactly. And a lot of people sort of poo-pooed that at the time. Yeah. But that does, I think, you know, I don't think that's government policy. Yeah. I think it need, needs to be. But that is what's happening, particularly yeah. in the public sector. I hear that from a lot of people who say, you know, I was speaking to somebody the other day who works in, in, in a local council who was saying, you know, that they'll often have a high, hybrid meeting is now the norm because yeah. there's always somebody who is not quite right. Now, but of course, if you're an employer, you've got to make sure that's not abused, though, haven't you? You have. There's a balancing act here. But I mean, there's so much you can do to monitor people's work rates and so on when they're working at home. But I think the, you know, if you're off sick, you're off sick should be the first thing as a doctor. You know, you need to rest and recuperate. I think it's when people are recovering from infection, they feel they're able to perform at a reasonable level, but they're still coughing and spluttering. So I had a chest infection six weeks ago and I coughed. Well, actually, it was eight weeks ago. I only stopped coughing two weeks ago um, intermittently. 
But for the, that week or two after the infection, where I was still having horrible paroxysms of coughing, but, you know, I was I felt otherwise fine. I was conscious that if I was out and about traveling, people looked at me like I was a social pariah um, and people didn't want to be around me. So I think society has changed. Um, none of this is going to be helped by the vaccination changes, but I think it is a separate but important conversation about prevention. How do we better prevent respiratory diseases going forward and what will the new societal norms be? Hmm. OK, let's take a quick break and then we're going to talk about NHS workforce and down under. Welcome back. I said we're going to talk about Down Under, Helen, and the NHS workforce. Yes. So I'll tell you why. Nick Triggle, who's oh, BBC, BBC BBC reporter uh, and a good one, has done a piece of yeah has done a piece of work, uh, which has been published online today. Which analysis of data suggests that this claim that doctors are there's an exodus of doctors going down under, and of course it's one of the reasons put forward to support some of the industrial action that's gone on is not borne out by the facts so what he's done with some colleagues rob england jim reed they've, they've, they've done quite a bit of work they've looked at data from nhs digital in england over the past decade and and the way that they do it is by looking at what they call the percentage of doctors who are applying for certificate of good standing yes. which is something that they would allow them to i guess to go and apply for positions overseas now Applying for a certificate does not necessarily mean that the doctor went on to leave the country. And the reason I know a little bit about this is I remember being at Department of Health when Jeremy Hunt was health secretary in the first junior doctor strike when I was his PPS. This was 2016. And there was a lot of stories then about this. Oh, you know, they're all they're all off. They're all they're all leaving. And of course, there were lots of people downloading said certificate but doesn't necessarily mean that they use them. And Nick's piece of work seems to suggest that that is still the case. I'm not, you know, I'm not being uh, triumphant here at all. Uh, no, no, no reason to be, but I think it's sometimes important, isn't it, to not let the facts get in the way of a, a good story. Yeah, or a good headline. I mean, I think, you know, I, I mean, a lot of us would have been slightly horrified by the sight of um, Australia, um, um medical bodies recruiting for jobs down under by putting billboards alongside junior doctors who are taking industrial action. I have to say that left a bitter taste in my mouth. Um, but you can see why it happens. But this piece of work is really interesting. And I think they've tried to do it very well in a balanced way because they've got the NHS digital data and they've got GMC data. Um, and they've really tried to find the truth behind how many doctors are leaving the NHS and how many are joining the NHS. And certainly their consensus is more joining than are leaving. So the overall numbers of doctors are going up, which is a good thing. Goodness knows we need them. But I think there is there are nuances within this data, see, that we shouldn't overlook. That there's a huge number of doctors in their earlier stages of training who are deferring going into substantive training posts. A lot of them do come back, but they're pausing training. And which is meaning they are they are having time to think, to recover and to regroup. Um, there's definitely a lot of bitterness out there on the front line. So I think whilst this headline may be reassuring for people planning the workforce, I wouldn't get too complacent on the, on the basis of it, because I think there's there's depth and there's nuance within the data that could be overlooked by the headline. Yeah. So in 2022, I think it looks like what I can see from the data here is that we're just 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 under 7000 uh, doctors seeking this certificate of good standing. 
And if you go back to, well, 2016, it's a bit lower than that. And just when you get to the the original protest, the junior doctor strike, it was over 8,000 where those certificates were requested. So the, the numbers go up and down. People can, can look online, but you're right. Of course, going abroad is still an option, isn't it? And it's a, and it's a nice option. There are all sorts of lifestyle reasons, health reasons, family reasons, think, mental yeah. health reasons why people might want to go and work in Australia. I mean, it's not a it's not a panacea. You know, yeah. Australia and New Zealand are, are not UK, and it's not where you're from. Um, but of course, Australia is an attractive destination for doctors. I I understand that. But then you know what? So is the NHS and so is the NHS pension scheme. And so is all the wonderful things about the varied, the varied country that we live in here with the um the varied weather pattern that we have, which I know we moan <laughs> about, but you know, it's not it's just it's boring if it rains all the time. But it's also I think it's boring if it's just sunny all the time. I think this is a fantastic country to live and work in. Yeah, I mean, the, just just to finish up on the the, the junior doctors bit of it, I mean. There were over 12,000 doctors who were trained abroad who joined the medical register in the UK last year, whereas homegrown doctors, newly qualified homegrown ones, 8,000 joined the register. So we are so more overseas doctors are joining the register than UK trained doctors. I think that's quite a powerful statistic because those who are leaving are being replaced by those who come in from overseas and some. Okay. Yeah. So if you're interested in that story, I think you just sort of Google UK Dr. Exodus and you'll see that piece of work that Nick Triggle and his colleagues have done uh, on the BBC. Mm. Okay. Right. Uh, it's time for me to press this button, Helen. Ready? Oh, that makes me happy, Steve. Does that make you happy? Because that does. means the pod surgery is open with my awesome. 1970s doorbell. <laughs> the infamous now 1970s doorbell. Yeah, here's one uh, that you will be interested in uh, from somebody called Steve Hathaway. Hello, Stephen Helen. We have been into prevention throughout COVID by monitoring for high temperature, as this is an initial and primary indicator of early stage infection. By isolating a medical diagnosis, the infection is therefore contained and prevented from spreading to others. So, you know, what we were just talking about then with COVID. Um, has the NHS done any specific research investigated using temperature monitoring for wellness and general prevention. Um, so I don't know what the answer to this in terms of the research that they've done, but from a clinical point of view, I mean, he's right, isn't he? That, that temperature and monitoring that can well be a useful sign of ill health before it becomes serious. Yeah, it is interesting. I, mean, I certainly don't know in terms of the research side of it. I'm quite sure there are researchers out there now who will write in and let us know uh, what work is being done on it. But at a practical level, I mean, you know, keeping an eye on your temperature, knowing what your baseline temperature is, having a reasonably sensitive uh, temperature me measuring device available at home are all really good things because you know when it goes up, that's a, often a sign your body's fighting an infection. I mean, from my point of view, the times when it is used most are for people who are immunocompromised, so those going through chemotherapy, those who've got very poor perhaps renal function on transplant lists, they are often people who are strongly advised by secondary care specialists to keep a close eye on their temperature and use that as an indicator to contact us as their GP uh, for early interventions with antibiotics and so on. But also, for me, it's a contraception use is... Um, patients who closely monitor their cyclical temperature for an ovulation prediction ah, uh, and yes. you need a good fine reading thermometer to do that so, uh, so the 
certainly our natural rhythms uh, and temperature measurement is fascinating. Um, it's certainly not a recommended for everybody yet, but I'm sure research will emerge. I'm keen to know more. Ah, very good. Um, anyway, what have you got? I've got one from Paul in the Midlands who has asked, Steve, dear Stephen Helen, please can we hear more about Monty? He's the most interesting part of the pod some week. <laughs> Not sure whether we should be grateful or, or <laughs> insulted. Um, I think Monty, it was, it was Monty, a cheap request. Yes, Monty is my black Labrador who is, as because I'm recording it at home during parliamentary mm-hmm. recess, is currently at my feet, but he's in disgrace. He oh. is in disgrace, Helen. Uh, and, Again? Well, yes, because we play a bit of golf and he comes on the golf course with me. And what he does is he seems to have some kind of homing device for water. And any of you who play golf who listen to this will know that sometimes the water on golf courses and water features on golf courses are not designed for swimming in uh, by humans or dogs. They are filthy and they stink. And so he... The other day, I was playing at Dulwich Golf Course. Uh, he found some water, which he decided to jump into with gusto and then ran onto the green and shook himself all over the white trousers of the partner I was playing with, <laughs> who took it very well and uh, exceptionally well, considering I went on to beat him. But um, yes, bless him. He, he is in disgrace about this at the moment uh, when we go to the next golf course. But other than that, he is in fine form. So, which brings me up to you do a lot of walking with Monty. I mean, he ensures you do lots of walking. Yeah, so they, four and a half has... hour walk when he comes on the golf Whoa. course. Do you monitor mm. your steps, Steve? Do you wear a step monitor or what? No, never. And I should. Yeah, I mean, you, you probably give yourself a really good, you know, smug boost by so i've got one of these smart watches i've had and i've had step counters and smart watches and things over the years because there's something for me i i'm inherently slightly competitive um but mostly personally competitive and it's about how i can sort of do better and i like the sort of the gamified element of counting my steps to see if i can fit extra steps in on a day when i've been a bit inactive so i know surgery days i have to get up and call the patients in from the consulting room and i'll the building I work in is quite large, but I really struggle to get a decent number of steps in in a day. And I have been known, this is an embarrassing confession, but I have been known as it's getting close to bedtime to looking at my step count, realising I'm a few hundred short of the, the daily target and going for a walk around the garden, around the house or a few trips up and down the stairs to what my husband is normally sitting there chuckling away to himself at my uh, neurosis. But today I've spotted a story about steps. Have you seen this one? No, go on. Go on. You know, there's been a target. It's been touted that it's 10,000 steps a day. We need to be taking the magic number to stay fit and healthy. But a new study has shown that less than 5,000 steps may be sufficient to see benefit. So there's a big, big global study being done. And actually, just over two and a half, about 2,500 steps a day is enough to have benefit on your heart and blood vessels. And then for every extra 1,000 steps you do reduces the risk of dying up to 20,000 steps a day. So so you're you're going to be up to 20,000 steps end if you're doing very long walks with Monty. Um, but me and my GP colleagues are in surgery who's struggling to get to 5,000 steps a day can be a little bit reassured that actually, as long as we do get up and go and get the patient mm-hmm. into the consulting room, make sure we, you know, get the walks and exercise in when we can. It's not as bad as we feared. And there's some really interesting work about how we understanding that the calories on the energy that we expend that isn't necessarily on formal exercise um but that is doing the the normal thing whether it's the housework it's the ironing it's the clean whatever is all useful for our cardiovascular health 
Okay. Yeah, I see you sent me the link now. So, so if people want to find out more about this, it's the Medical University of Lodz in Poland and Johns Hopkins University uh, School of Medicine in the US, yeah. where you can find out that piece of work. So I thought we should wrap up with some final holiday conversations, Steve, mm-hmm. as you're about. So tell me, flip-flops. Are you a flip-flop man? Good Lord, no. No, I have issues with things between my toes uh, and flip-flops. I mean, I don't like anybody touching my toes, let alone putting things between my toes. And I can't imagine, therefore, why you would put something on your foot that is a permanent toe toucher. Uh, There's obviously a huge psychological unpacking that needs here a lot of issues um yes doctor uh but i can't think why you'd want to put something between your toes so william my son has just bought some sliders Ah, um, which i'm quite taken with monty was quite taken with them and in fact took them um but they were they were retrieved quickly but yeah i'm quite keen on quite keen on the old slider yeah, sliders are a great option. And then you've got the sort of sandals with straps over them. I mean, flip-flops certainly provoke quite violent reactions in people. So, I mean, I have to say, I've, I I like a topo so long as the soft cushion topos. Can't be doing with those nasty hard plastic topos. So I'm with you there. But but there are some nice ones with a cushion topos. Yeah. It's worth a try. Um, sliders are available. Um, which brings us on to sun hat, Steve. Right. Floppy, floppy, floppy rim, bucket hat, baseball cap. How do you keep the sun off your face and head? Spurs baseball cap. But okay, fair enough. Okay, that's, 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 someone's got to wear it. Uh, well, you know, I'm a cricket fan, and um, you know, I, so I I quite like seeing the sort of the large, proper, floppy cricket hat. Oh, right, the tilly hat. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Although I have to say, last weekend I was meant, we were meant to be at the hundreds in Edgebaston with some friends, and it was complete washout. So we sp- sat at home, which was very disappointing. But my father-in-law used to have a tilly hat, and uh, we went on holiday once when I first met my wife to a to a hot to a hot part of the south of France, and we couldn't find him, and he was sitting in a cupboard wearing his tilly hat, reading a book, which I know you were going to talk about sun cream and uh, which is probably the safest place to be if it's really, really hot. <laughs> it was a bit weird, but uh, but he certainly didn't get sunburn. I can tell you that. Yeah, well, I did want to finally finish with sun cream because, of you know, this is all about prevention, this podcast, after all. And it amazes me how many people still won't use adequate amounts of sun cream and appropriate amounts of sun cream. So even though you are, in your words, just going to Devon, Devon is very wonderful. Have you got the sun cream ready? And what sort of are you a sun cream or a sun spray? You know, the alcohol based one? Oh, what I are... don't know. I mean, I, I I I don't like I don't like creams. Right. So you know, like Susie will often say, if I've got dry hands, put some hand cream on. I cannot bear slimy hands. And and for me, sun cream is just part of that. But but don't worry, don't panic, doctor. I that get it. I get panic. it that I need I get it that I need to spray the stuff and rub it in. Um so yeah, I'll I'll li- wear I'll wear sun cream for you. I promise. But the liquid, and this is, I think, well, this is a really important plug: is that there are liquid-based ones that are not leaving you greasy and sticky like the creamy ones. I mean, the creamy ones are easier for getting a high factor coverage. So certainly for kids and people who need that factor thirty, fifty, or whatever. But for the sort of lower factors, the liquid ones are actually really good and well absorbed. So give it a try. Protect yourself and save yourself from skin cancer down the line. Yes, boss. Okay, Uh, should we wrap it up there? A couple of of things for the future is that we have just launched on the select committee a, a new inquiry on men's health. 
She's the yeah. first time a specific men's health inquiry has been done by a parliamentary committee for a long, long time. Certainly the decade or more that I've been in parliament so far. So we're doing that, which people will be interested in. And I did a big talk with something called the Men's Health Forum the other day to launch oh, yes, the inquiry. Yeah, to launch the inquiry and being contacted by quite a few very interesting organisations wanting to come on the podcast and talk Good. about that. So I thought we could do a men's health special at some point. Um, I'm hoping we're going to still talk about food intolerances. And there's a really interesting family who've got a tragic story to tell. And I'll let them tell it when they come on about they okay. lost their brother and son to to a food intolerance a few years ago. They're, they're going to come on and talk about that. And Secretary of State has confirmed uh, um, some time to come on. So we'll probably be doing that, talking to the Secretary of State on the podcast in September. Excellent. Looking forward to it very much. Have a lovely holiday, Steve. You've earned it. Thanks so much, Helen. If you want to contact us, you can find us on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or X or whatever he calls it this week. Uh, you can find us on there and podcast at, yeah, podcast at stevebryan.com will reach us with questions and subjects for pod surgery. Until next time, see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.